How's it going? I'm Coco. And this is Mike. And this is Rock and Vino, the podcast where we talk about wine and music and how the two go so well together. You can find past episodes all over the web. You can find them at iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, all over the place. Uh, rockandvino.com on social media at rockandvino. Like and subscribe. You get new episodes every Tuesday delivered straight to you. And it's uh, it's super fun and easy. Always really you know, interesting folks coming in. And one especially this week. I, I, I think this one's going to be really cool. Uh, with uh, Nolan Gasser joining us this week. I have a new book, Why You Like It, The Science and Culture of Musical Taste. And and you really did a deep dive into this this subject. First off, thanks for coming in. Absolutely. It's great to be here. Thank you. Now, you have such a varied background. Um, I believe it was a musician first? I, uh, yes. I began playing piano when I was four, so I'm told. I uh, started probably composing a few years later. So music has been my life and my passion since as, as long as I have any memory. Nice. Now, how did the, your interest grow in sort of the, the science behind music and why people like what they like? Well, it definitely has been a, a, a journey, a sort of circuitous path uh, that led me to write this book. Um, I am sort of first and foremost a composer and a pianist. And that was my studies as an undergrad. And then after I finished my undergrad at Cal State Northridge uh, in 1988, a long time ago, uh, I spent uh, the next two years in Paris. Uh, I went with a buddy of mine. We sold all of our gear and went over there. And I went to study composition with a pretty well-known composer. And I played jazz and jazz clubs and drank lots of red wine. So (laughs) that's sort of fitting. and when I was just shortly after I got there, right, this was you know 19 late 80s, the you know early years of CDs, and I picked up a CD of uh, the uh, New College Oxford Choir uh, under the direction of Edward Higginbottom, a nice English name, <laughs> and it was the uh, five and six part motets of a composer named Josquin Desprez. And I uh, doubt that many of your listeners know that name, but although he, in his own day, he was incredibly well-known. He was a contemporary of Leonardo da Vinci's and actually worked with him. And I put on this CD and it just kind of blew my mind. It was music very different from that that I had been listening to and studying, uh, obviously of the West, because he worked in Italy and France, but just of a different, you know, praxis, as we say, sort of a different way of, of constructing music. And I didn't quite understand what he was doing. So that led me to want to explore it more. And that was my first foray into the world of Renaissance musicology. Uh, and so I returned to the States a couple of years later and continued composition studies, but I began to pivot more towards musicology and then was fortunate to get into the doctoral program at Stanford. Uh, and completed my work there on sacred music in Renaissance Milan. So again, continuing in that path. And it was at the very end of my studies. This was in uh, late 1999, early 2000, that I got an email from a guy named Tim Westergren, who had just a few months earlier gotten some seed money for a startup music technology company. (laughs) It was called Savage Beast Technologies that a few years later changed its name to Pandora. Uh, the the lovely app that is on everybody's phone and on all of our smart TVs and plays all that wonderful music for us, which is awesome. And so, what was your um relate? What what was your involvement with Pandora? 
Well, I was unfortunately not one of the founders, but I was like, <laughs> I was like the second or third employee. And, wow. you know, the whole notion of the company was, uh, you know, the, this notion of the Music Genome Project. I did not coin the name. It was coined by another one of the founders, Will Glazer, who's a real genius in the technology and the engineering and algorithm side. Mm. And the idea was to marry music analysis with database algorithms and technology to make better recommendations so that if you like this particular song by the Rolling Stones, you like Paint It Black, you know, what other songs might you like, um, you know, by the Stones or the Who or the Kinks, whatever, but also to explore music that was less known. And in mm -hmm. fact, one of the real imperatives that Tim and, uh, and Will and others early in the company that we really wanted to do was to level the playing field, to make it so that less well-known musicians would have the ability to introduce themselves to music fans just as well as the big hit makers. Mm. And so I was fortunate to get on, again, on the ground floor, and so I'm the architect of all of the music genomes, so I'm the architect of the Music Genome Project, and I ran the whole music operation from the get-go through about 2008, and so I uh, created all of the, uh, the, the, the sort of seven genomes, which is pop and rock and jazz and hip hop, electronica, world music and classical. Uh, there's now actually a podcast uh, genome as well, but I'm, <laughs> I'm no longer with the company, so somebody else did that one. Now, when you're starting something like that, and uh, do you have kind of data to draw from from that, or where do you even... Yeah begin a project like that about relating how these different songs and artists sound to each other and what people might like if they like a certain thing. Right, so well, the whole notion of creating this from a sort of genomic standpoint was the idea that we could break down what's happening in the music down to a sort of genomic level, a gene base or a detailed factor-based uh, sort of model. The idea is let's figure out really what's going on. Let's quantify everything that's going on under the hood of a song. How is the melody constructed? What is the timbre or the sound of the singer's voice? What, are, you know, what instruments are used and how are they used? What kind of harmony is used? What is the rhythmic language like? So really breaking these things down, not just to yes or no on off mm. uh, kind of relationships, but if, if I say that there's a flute in this recording, it's not just yes, there's flute or, no, flute or no, there's not, but how is it used? To what degree does it impact the experience of listening to that song? So if it's a Jethro Tull song, probably quite a bit. Mm -hmm. If it's you know a Donovan song where there's a you know little eight bar, eight measure flute solo, you know not quite as much. So really, again, hundreds and hundreds of factors. That was my background as a, as a musicologist. How do you really? And how do you analyze, how do you break down the sort of the discourse, the narrative, and the experience of a, of a piece of music? And so that's what the Music Genome did, is uh, to try to do that. And so we built this, this model, and then we started hiring musicians, you know, who were trained, you know, so the rock genome, you had to be a rock musician. The jazz genome had to be a jazz musician and so forth. Go through this training period, and then you'd sit with headphones on, staring at a computer screen as you played over and over and over <laughs> again that track wow. to go through all those hundreds of genes, just, you know, to really quantify and calibrate the melody and that's how you can compare music that's how you can compare two songs that are maybe alike in a lot of dimensions but you know but not 
not in just a few, or dissimilar in most things, but similar in the way they use an instrument or the kind of harmonic language or that sort of thing. So we get a real good sense of how music and how different songs correlate with one another. Do you find there's overlap in, I mean, you mentioned there's, I think you said seven different genomes. Is there overlap in, say, you know, the rock genome and the jazz genome of things you wouldn't necessarily expect that have like common tendencies between them? As you went along, did you find that? Well, absolutely. And it's not not surprising, really. I mean, it's and if you look at it from the genetic standpoint, again, it's just a metaphor. We're not saying these are actual biological entities. Um, and there's there are even are some challenges with using the notion of genotype, but I'll, I'll save your uh, listeners from that discussion. <laughs> you, you can read about it in the book. Um, but you know, we humans, for example, share about 95 or 98 percent of our genome with apes, right? Mm-hmm. And even like 70 uh, percent with mice, and like 45 percent with uh, with fruit flies. <laughs> so biologically speaking, as well, there's a lot of overlap. We all share because we all sort of derive from the same you know single cell organisms billions of years ago. So there is a lot of similarity, and so it makes sense. Uh, that that would happen in in a in a creation of uh, of of humans, and uh, so indeed there is a lot of overlap in terms of the genes because just like uh, a pop song has you know that uses riffs and uses certain kinds of harmonic loops and certain kinds of you know both regular and irregular meters, well so does jazz, mm-hmm. maybe to a heightened degree. So maybe you know odd meter. So for if you know four four for example a dun da da dun da da dun dun da you know or triple meter three four dun 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 da are common but so is five four da dun da dun dum bum 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 that kind of meter maybe more cup more common in jazz that was sort of the rhythm of take five than in in pop but. Take a song like Money from Pink Floyd, it's actually in 7 4. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 1, 2, 3. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, there's a lot of overlap, but that also suggests that if you're, if you're kind of, you know, grooving on an odd meter uh, in one, sort of by one artist, you might groove in, in an odd meter in another. Uh, or if you like that in, in rock, you might like that in jazz. Um, unfortunately, and I'll, I don't want to go on too long about this, but uh, Pandora doesn't currently, as far as I know, have a way that you can navigate. So if you like Pink Floyd, if you like Fish or whatever, some other group that likes to sort of revel in these odd meters, here's what you might like in uh, in jazz. Um, that technology exists from the music genome standpoint, but I don't know if they've put it into the platform. I don't think they have. Now, as... As time goes on, and I, you know, either pop culture generations change, did you see? Do you see the the commonalities and the things that people like change, or does it go back to those base things that are common in the songs uh, as to how people relate to different artists? Well, you know, we all are again as as humans. There are certain musical properties, certain musical techniques that regardless of where you grow up, when you grow up, you're going to gravitate to. So certain intervals, octaves, uh, even certain consonances like major chords, uh, you know, regular meter and those regular groupings of, of, of beats is something that is, I think, a universal, um, not to say that humans can't get 
pretty clever with uh, with with different complex meters, as a lot of cultures do. And in Turkey or in Bulgaria, uh, odd odd meters are even more common than in the West. But um, you know. We, we as humans gravitate to, towards certain uh, musical inclinations. It's, you know, so it's not for nothing that one thing about rock and roll is that each new generation needs to have its, its stamp of this is our generation's rock. But one of the mainstays is, you know, to, in order to find that, you know, new sound, that generation that's ours, often go back to the basics, kind of simple, mm. simple, you know, one, four, five chord progressions or simple, you know, sort of guitar, bass, drums, um, you know, and then it can get more sophisticated as the next, uh, you know, uh, movement takes off, um, you know, so... You know, again, we we all are capable of liking a great variety of things, but there's a lot a lot that that sort of unites us in our taste. So you took your background in musicology and um, with the Pandora genome, and which brings us to the book, the um, why you like it, science of music, uh, the science of culture of musical taste. Uh, is it take sort of drawing from all of that past background and sort of explaining the nuts and bolts of how how it all works? Was that was that the goal with writing it? Well, I think the goal was even more kind of crazily am, 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 am ambitious than that. Um, the book does go into deep deep levels of, of uh, de- de- detail about how music operates. So we, we, I sort of break down all the different parameters of music, melody, harmony, rhythm, form, sound, uh, and really try to give people, again, not trained in music, this is not for experts, this is for average, everyday music lovers, uh, to try to explain those details of music theory. Uh, I do that in, in sort of an opening five chapters that deal with those musical parameters. And then I continue it as we explore the musical taste of what I call seven, you know, seven um, music, um, seven music genotypes uh, in those seven different uh, species that I mentioned. But the book really goes well beyond just the actual musical details. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to really explain musical taste, um, I felt it necessary uh, to talk about those things that music touches upon in science, in physics, uh, in neuroscience, how the brain really is such a musical processing machine, um, even a connection of our cells, how our cells work, uh, and then in the realms of sociology, of culture and subculture, and then finally psychology. So all of those dimensions are, uh, are the means by which our taste in music goes from being something that we all share. So by virtue of the physics and sound, we all love octaves. We all love consonants. Uh, we all can, can uh, and by the way our brains work, we all like to, you know, to find that steady beat. But then as we move into our culture and our subculture and especially our own psychology, our taste becomes more individual. And so the book really is uh, this deep dive well beyond even the, the specifics of the music itself. One of the things I think is can makes it more accessible is a lot of the songs you're looking at are you know, contemporary songs, but things that people can relate to immediately. I think I you had um, Kendrick Lamar in there. I think was one I saw. But mm-hmm. uh, was that sort of a conscious effort to um, you know, include sort of these these modern things that people are you know immediately aware of that to um, uh, to you know get into the book more? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it was it was a big, tough decision uh, to figure out which music to to highlight, especially. I mean, I I name and list, uh, you know, probably a thousand different, you know, uh, composers and artists and songs, but I made the decision to really explore these musical genotypes, these these sort of you know preferences that lie principally within one of those species of music. Again, pop, rock, jazz, hip hop, electronica, world, and classical. And, you know, how much can I dive into, uh, in, I mean, how much detail can I dive into any one song? Once I figure that out, then how many songs can I possibly include <laughs> in this book so that it's not 10,000 pages long? So I came down to including four in the book and then one on the website. And I would say the book, that, that there is a very robust website that accompanies the book uh, that has every single music example in the book, has an audio that, that accompanies in it that you can hear on the website. There are playlists, there are supplemental readings, all that kind of stuff. Wow. And so including that fifth song per, per genotype. Um, and so if I say, okay, I'm going to, create a an example of a lover of rock you know so i have f five songs i mean it's kind of an impossible task or five <laughs> hip-hop songs or five classical works i'm going to offend somebody right <laughs> mm -hmm. uh so it it was i mean you mentioned uh, you mentioned um kendrick lamar i mean that was to me you know an example of something that i knew would resonate with you know, people that are actively engaged in what's going on right now. There's going to be a lot of people that pick up the book that are not fans of hip hop. And so part of the goal was, you know, I maybe some could argue, you know, I pick in the hip hop genome, I pick Snoop Dogg, I pick Eminem for these, again, these detailed dives. I pick Kendrick Lamar. Um, and then I do a song by Earth, Wind and Fire, who's frequently sampled mm -hmm. by hip hop artists. And then a, uh, a, a combination with uh, the rapper Common and John Legend. Um, and admittedly, these are not the most esoteric examples of hip hop. Um, so if you're really a hardcore fan, uh, you know, of really what's going on in the street, you're going to say, oh, those are so obvious. Um, I mention a lot of others that are less obvious um, in, in the discussion, but... I think many, many people are not familiar with hip hop and they put these barriers up. They say, well, you know, I don't, I don't like that rapping stuff. And so they, they put, uh, you know, boundaries. And so by using really kind of war horses, if you will, of the genre, including a contemporary war horse like, like, like Kendrick Lamar's Eye, um, will hopefully be a way for people to say, you know what, actually, I kind of like that. So that was a, a challenge for all of the of the those different genres, um, but you have to make choices, or else the book would never end. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess this more going back to when you were starting with Pandora, how once you got, I guess, what you call them algorithms, I guess, to get of what people sort of predicting what people might like, uh, were you able to kind of get feedback as you know Pandora launched and got more users that. Uh, oh yes, the, you know, so and so song. You know, yes, this this is a song that people like. Or oh no, this one actually doesn't. You know, this is a song that artists, fans of artist X, don't like. Uh, were you able to kind of watch that in real time? Of you know, what, which where it worked and where it didn't, and build it from there, or how did that work? Well, sure. I mean, in our own process of kind of developing, uh, you know, the actual genomes, I mean, early on, our, we ourselves just working in the confines of our office, you know, of, of like nine people, um, 
you know, had our own tests of, you know, it questioning, does this work? Is this possible? Because again, it's based on a, you know, complex, as Will would call it, it's sort of 500 dimensional space, right? Because it's not just, you know, relating a set of, you know, one set of numbers to another set of numbers. It's to what degree does, we have something we call focus traits, meaning that certain aspects of the of the sort of musical um, language and the musical sort of approach are more dominant in a song. In some songs, it could be rhythm. It's a very rhythmic, syncopated song, and that's really the experience that, that comes to the fore. Or maybe it's the timbre of the voice. If it's Tom Waits, you know, you're so, in, you, know, uh, you know, confronted with the timbre of his voice. Um, but again, it's the whole that makes the experience of the song. So it's a complex process. And early on, I mean, one of the stories I tell in the book is um, we had, you know, analyzed maybe 200 songs, and it was mainly me and Tim, because Tim, Tim is obviously also a musician, um, and again, uh, in the pop rock world. So I, I analyzed a bunch of Beatles songs, and I had analyzed the Bee Gees from Saturday Night Fever, mm -hmm. right, some of the disco stuff. and. Tim obviously analyzed a bunch of stuff too. And so we were first trying this out and we put as our, our matching song, Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles. And the number one match that came up was a song by the Bee Gees. And it was a, 19, a 1941 mining disaster. I'm sorry, New York mining disaster, 1941. Um, and I didn't analyze that song and sort of shame on me, I didn't know that song, but it was instructive because I said, I'm, you know, is this one of the songs on Saturday Night Fever? How could possibly, you know, Eleanor Rigby match as a first match this disco song? So I thought it didn't work. <laughs> um, and in many ways, this was my own bias, you know, and, and, and my own lack of awareness, of course. The Bee Gees started in the mid-60s in the folk rock realm, trying to almost be the next Beatles. And those two songs are perfect matches to each other in terms of their overall sonority, the, the approach to the vocals and the harmony and, and the instrumentation. Um, so that was an example of saying, not sure that it works. Uh, one other quick example is um, early on when we actually made it internet radio. So th this was 2004, four years after the company started, uh, we figured out how to actually make money <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to how we had been doing it. Um, and so we, we had a user early on, uh, you know, who created a station based on Sarah McLaughlin's music. So mm. Angel, right? And, um, he wrote us an email and was very upset because he said, you know, why are you guys playing the music of Celine Dion on my station? He named this particular song. And so we went, we looked at it and we compared it to some of the seed songs from Sarah McLaughlin. And we pointed out to him that the timbre of their voices, the you know, use of instrumentation, the kind of song forms, all of these things were very much aligned. And so we invited him to listen to it again. And he wrote back and said, you know, damn you, Pandora, you made me realize that I like Celine Dion. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so I, you know, I think that's a very instructive tale for all of us because we all have our own Celine Dion's. We say we oh, couldn't yeah. possibly like that. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, you know, or even whole realms like hip hop, I, I, you know, I don't like, or I don't like, you know, electronica, or I don't like classical. Um, and, you know, we're, we're selling ourselves short. Yeah, so many people have that bias towards certain genres of music where, you know, they like, oh, I like everything except for this one, or I'm strictly like into this kind of music, and why does, why does this subgenre of that music have to be 
in mixed with this, you know? So it's really interesting. It's like Pandora's helping to kind of like broaden their experience and hopefully open their ears and eyes to something new. Yeah, well, that certainly is the goal to uh, to get people to, you know, be exposed to music that they didn't know, to have them, you know, question their own, you know, sort of limits and their own taste. Um, you know, at the same time, Pandora is, you know, just operating on that musicological standpoint. And it's a business, so it's it's factoring in things like popularity. So if you create mm-hmm. a, you know, Bruce Springsteen's, you know, station or a station based on a particular song, you know, with between the thumbs up and thumbs down, mm-hmm. uh, which is a way that people can train their station. And I'll just say parenthetically, I really encourage everybody to make sure that whenever they create a station to spend the first little while training it via those thumbs up and thumbs down, because that's how you're teaching the music genome, you know, what aspects of the song you might like, what kinds of approaches to harmony or instrumentation. But Pandora, you know, makes its own, you know, bias, if you will, by Assuming, you know, if if there are a million people that created a station based on, uh, you know, um, what what a wonderful world by 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 Louis Armstrong. And there's like these 50 songs that get thumbs thumbs up all the time. Maybe a lot of people will get thumbs up, you know, will will like them, that song. But it doesn't mean that you will. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, and there's these other factors that I talk about in the book, because it's not just the music that impacts our musical taste or that gives gives the origins to it. It's the culture that we grew up in, especially the, the subcultures, the cliques and communities that we that we associate with our that we associate with, that we help to define ourselves by. And at the end of the day, it's our own personality. It's our you know, our own predilections, our own ima- sort of emotional capacity and our sort of per- sort of personality types uh, that could sort of defy stereotype. Now, we talk uh, on, on here a lot about both music and wine. Uh, could you, hypothetically, <laughs> uh, take sort of the, the basis behind your thinking in why people like the music they like and apply it to wine and figure out why people like the wine they like. Well, it is, as we were talking before we got started, it's uh, very, very funny that you should ask that question. <laughs> um, so given the, you know, the success of, uh, of Pandora and my role as the you know, architect of the Music Genome Project, I have over the years been, you know, uh, I've received sort of requests, you know, in other domains outside of music. You know, we thought about a book genome mm-hmm. or a movie genome. Uh, and indeed, a wine genome was one of those. And I, I love wine, uh, so I've always liked the idea. And it actually finally, uh, that sort of uh, combination of factors, not so much a wine genome, but working with data and wine, has actually come to fruition. There is a company, a very vibrant company, it's called Emetry. Uh, which is based in Napa, and I'm actually a co-founder of the company. Uh-huh. It's under the leadership of Paul Maybray. So any of your uh, listeners that are sort of aware of sort of the digital wine space will know Paul. He's a real luminary and a pioneer in that space. And so we are the sort of, I'd like to say, we are the leading data analytics company uh, in the wine sector, dealing with you know all of the wineries and helping them to under, better understand consumer behavior. So it's, you know, it's along that same line of using data, you know, wisely to figure out how you can, you know, rationalize uh, a whole bunch of data points and, and get insight from it. It's not exactly answering your question, but uh, since there's such a, a direct link there, I thought <laughs> I'd go on that tangent. Um, 
So, you know, at some point, we actually do plan on on creating a, a g- sort of a genome or a recommendation engine within Emetry, and I know that there are probably some other, you know, wine genomes. And the idea really would be, okay, so you like, um, you know, you're a fan of, of uh, you know, of, of Pinot. Um, you know, what are those characteristics, right? Mm-hmm. So if we look at Pinot as a species, much like rock, right? You know, and there's a lot of, there's Russian River, there's Carneros, there's, you oh, know, yeah. obviously in Burgundy. Um, so what are those, what are those musicological or winological, en- enological mm-hmm. uh, factors that we can break down the, you know, the different notes, the, you know, the terroir, the, uh, the precipitation, the, the soil, the climate, what are all those factors that would impact ultimately the experience that if you like, uh, you know, I won't name any brands necessarily, but if you, but if you like one, you know, one brand um, of Pinot, uh, then you, you know, you, uh, you might well like another one because it shares, you know, certain factors. Or if you give it a thumbs up, it would begin to fine tune that. So I think the, uh, the, the, the transference of the approach is, uh, is entirely uh, doable and you know, again, I think others have tried to do something similar, but when we get our hands on it, it'll be the <laughs> it'll <laughs> no be a, yeah, it'll be the, as, as as good or better than any. So P- at Pandora, but for wine, we should get on that idea. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as a as a music and a wine lover, um, do you find that the two complement each other in an experience overall? And and how would you say that they? work together in your opinion you know i mean it's a great question it's one that i i probably would really love thinking about even more deeply than than i can right now i mean certainly um you know the best experiences probably of drinking wine are when you're also listening to music yeah. right and you know we listening to a beautiful piece of music or a really or a, you know great groove uh to have you know that wonderful uh, you know sensory experience of uh you know of you know, have a great, you know, great uh, sort of uh, mouthful of wine, um, and, you know, in the nose and all that. It's, you know, it just complements the experiences. You're almost, you know, compounding that sensory experience of your ears, your brain and your and your palate. Um, I mean, just as, as, you know, obviously the wine uh, sector is very much aware of the power of food pairing with wine, right? So mm-hmm. certain kind where, you know, winemakers will, you know, scour, you know, uh, you know, different countries to find just the right cheese that will uh, complement a particular, you know, even a particular Pinot, one Pinot from another or, you know, or Pinot de Chardonnay or whatever, or Cab or whatever it is. Um, you know, I think it would be an interesting question to see uh, how you could make those kinds of correlations to music. You know, so a, a wine that has, you know, a real kind of subtlety about it, um, you know, where the, the, the flavors are a little bit more, you know, sort of the, the tannins are less and, you know, that's a little bit more muted uh, in its impact might go well with, you know, a piece of music that's very evocative, um, that's, you know, not, you know, maybe sort of a Baroque uh, concerto or a, a piece of folk rock or, you know, or some <laughs> acoustic jazz. Whereas if you're, re- you know, drinking a really bold Cabernet and it's, you know, it's your, your mouth is just uh, come alive. Um, you know, listen to some, you know, harder edge rock and roll or, uh, or some, you know, really, you know, vibrant, you know, some felonious monk or, <laughs> uh, you know, or some, you know, some, uh, you know, uh, 
um, energetic Beethoven. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised um, if you did a kind of a test on that, that you would find that there's a correlation in what would really seem like it's appropriate, right? Because mm-hmm. our brains are, you know, experiencing these things, uh, you know, in parallel. And one thing that I will say in terms of the book is uh, that was such a joy is to recognize how incredible our brains are in terms mm-hmm. of the the level of processing and meaning um, that we can garner that our brains in you know in milliseconds are just you know taking raw data mm-hmm. of of frequencies and pulses and making sense of them and turning them that into syntax and that in then in, into meaning into semantics and then into emotion and memory so it's doing the same thing when we first take a sip of wine mm-hmm. um and so the you know the brain I'm sure that if you know that that combination would affect how the brain processes processes both of them, so I think we should maybe uh, you know embark on some sort of a, an experiment. Sounds good. <laughs> now with the release of the book, you're traveling all over the place doing doing talks and doing events. And uh, for people in in the North Bay, up in Sonoma County, you're going to have an event at uh, Cinnabar in Petaluma. Uh, doing some playing and some talking. What, what's going to happen there? Yeah, well, absolutely. I'm super excited. Uh, just starting to, uh, you know, line up dates uh, across the country uh, to do kind of an evening of, uh, of, of of music and conversation. Obviously, to talk about the book, but to talk more broadly about musical taste and more broadly about music. Um, again, I am, I am a pianist, so I'll always incorporate an, an element of performance in that. Uh, and eventually, we're going to expand it to have you know all kinds of different performance opportunities, working with you know jazz groups and even symphony orchestras. Because with any piece of music, you can you know it's just a pulling a thread, and you can dive so deeply into um, all those kinds of musical discourse. Uh, so the Cinnabar event again is Cinnabar Theater in Petaluma. Uh, it's Sunday, June 23rd, 7.30, so please everybody come out. Um, and uh, that's gonna be kind of a, sort of a kickoff event in some ways for uh, the broader array of, of kind of events I'll be doing in the, in the late summer and in the fall. And um, yeah, so we'll listen to a lot of music and talk about uh, you know those different components, uh, our evolution, uh, physics, neuroscience, culture, subculture, psychology, all those things that that uh, that define our musical taste like a mystery novel penetrating <laughs> deep into our individuality, and then talking, of course, a lot about about a lot of different music. So it should be a fun night. Um, are the tickets being? Where are the tickets for that being sold? The tickets will be sold at Cinnabar. Okay. Yeah. So I don't. Know, we can maybe find their their phone number, and uh, but I'm sure it's. I think it's just cinnabar.org, but yeah. I could be wrong. We'll make sure to get the, the yeah. link up as well, so people can uh, just click the link and get right to it. So yeah, yeah it'll be, be real easy to find. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, the question I just thought of is, <laughs> in terms of. Uh, I don't know if quality is the right word, but were did you find commonalities as to why it's why people don't like a song? Uh, it you know in quantifying you know it's it's sort of loaded, but in good versus bad music, are there were there common characteristics as to why people didn't like something? Well, you've touched upon a couple of sort of uh, good, good, good topics there. Um, 
I think there are really as many reasons why people don't like something as they do. In some ways, they really are part of the same uh, overall recipe. They're, they're opposite sides of the same coin. The reason why you gravitate towards a certain musical uh, approach, a certain you know approach to form, may you may uh, like more than others, or harmony, is probably you know stands in direct relationship for for why you don't like things that uh, are um, in some ways antithetical to that. It doesn't, you know, again, it's not like we like one thing and we don't like everything else. Right. We, we, we all are pretty you know, pretty eclectic uh, to some degree or another. But I think, again, why we don't like something is tied into our our overall, what I call our sort of taste genotype or our taste profile. But you you tap into, you also mentioned uh, the notion of good versus bad. Mm-hmm. And, it's a, it's a topic that I address in the book um, because there is this notion of there is good taste and there's bad taste. Mm-hmm. And I really would like to, uh, you know, just sort of uh, state for the record, I think that's really kind of a fallacy that there is such a thing as good or, or bad taste. It's only good at the end of the day mm-hmm. if it's good for you. Now, um, you know, going back to the 17th century, there are, you know, there was this notion of philosophers like like David Hume that would say that if you really want to know what's good in art, you need to, it needs to be judged by a, by an educated expert, or, you know, a, a professional critic, if you will, that can tell you what's good. And you'd have discussions like by, you know, by virtue of all of these factors, the greatest composer ever is, is, is Handel, Georg Friedrich Handel. Um, and, you know, Mm-hmm. But who's who, who are you to say that, right? <laughs> um, and so really, again, as we talked about earlier, um, you could have, you know, ask 100 people if they think that, you know, um, that Beck's Odelay is a good album. Mm-hmm. And depending on who you ask, maybe you'll have, you know, 95 of them say yes. But it's that just means it's consensus mm-hmm. uh, because it's not just a matter of, of I mean, it, there's you have to separate craft and and kind of scope and um, you know approach because you can be objective about saying how ambitious a work is or again what are those musicological factors or how well produced it is in terms of the you know the the sort of fidelity quality, but that's a different thing from saying whether it's good or bad. Um, I cite in the book that, you know, for example, size um, Gangnam style, right? <laughs> it's a little dated now, but it had a billion views on oh, yeah. YouTube. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying all of those billion people loved it, but clearly <laughs> there's a lot of people that like that song. A very simple, repetitive, you know, one could say, you know, simplistic song. Uh, com- and I compare it to the, the St. Matthew Passion by, by Bach, which is like, a you know, a, a sort of two-hour plus, you know, incredibly, you know, complex work with all these different techniques and so full of power. You know, I would say that I think that the Bach piece is better than Psy, but but that's just my opinion. And somebody would listen to both those depending on their experience and their and their or in their their how they grew up. They could say, yeah, I get that the Bach is you know complex and sophisticated, but but I'll take the Psy any day. <laughs> so um, anyway, that's just comes out a little bit out of that notion of good and bad. How do you feel about mumble rap? <laughs> well, I, I'd like to say, but I can't really understand it. So. Yeah, I know, right? I don't think anybody can. <laughs> Excellent. Well, the book is Why You Like It, The Science and Culture of Musical Taste. I uh, get it 
wherever books are sold, you can uh, find it online. Uh, your website, I believe, nolangasser.com, but I don't think it's... Uh, is it up yet? It, 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 was, it, will, it will, will be, be up. up. Yeah. Okay. My, my website's under construction. We put so much energy into uh, uh, the, the, the Why You Like It um, uh, a website. I'll give a bit of a shout out to Tim Gennert, uh, who's also a Sonoma a county resident uh, who's just a, a whiz in the in the digital and other realms, and so he's kind of the guru behind that website. So please check it out, whyyoulikeit.com. It's got all kinds of cool bells and whistles. Uh, so we are now actually beginning working on my website because nice. <laughs> I do you know a variety of things even beyond uh, the things that we've talked about. So. Um, uh, yeah, so that'll be up uh, shortly, but uh, you know, people can contact me even through the stationary page that's uh, there and on the Why You Like It website. There's ways to contact me. Perfect. And uh, the event coming up at Cinnabar, we'll be able to we'll be sure to get the uh, the ticketing links up uh, on this episode page. So if you're you're interested and want to find out more, you can see uh, Nolan perform and talk about uh, what he's written about in the books. It's such a deep topic I can't even <laughs> you can't even imagine just getting started on a project like this yeah well that's why it's a big book <laughs> and it took me a long time to write but just to you know make sure that people know it, it is a it is a deep dive but I really try to make it uh, sort of user-friendly accessible uh, try to make it as conversational and uh, you know is fun try to add a little humor now and then so <laughs> Uh, you know, don't uh, don't think that you're not able to understand it because you absolutely are. Excellent. Well, thanks for taking the time and thanks for joining us. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you.